You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on his yoke. We are pressing into his promise of true life. Uh, If you would, uh, please remain standing for the reading of God's word. We'll be in Matthew 8 today. Matthew 8, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 17. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. It'll be in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Large crowds followed Jesus as he came down the mountainside. Suddenly a man with leprosy approached him and knelt before him. Lord, the man said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. Then Jesus said to him, don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, a a Roman officer, a centurion, came and pleaded with him, Lord, my young servant lies in bed paralyzed and in terrible pain. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. But the officer said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go and they go or come and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth. I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the Roman officer, go back home, because you believed it has happened. And the young servant was healed that same hour. When Jesus arrived at Peter's house, Peter's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. But when Jesus touched her hand, the fever left her. Then she got up and prepared a meal for him. That evening, many demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. He cast out the evil spirits with a simple command, and he healed all the sick. This fulfilled the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, who said, He took our sicknesses and removed our diseases. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are our great healer. God, you don't um, just simply heal at a distance. But God, you step down into our mess, into our brokenness, and you heal us. God, as we look at your word today, We ask that you would transform our hearts and our minds more and more into Christ-likeness. Spirit, soften our hearts. Help us to hear this story afresh. Help the gospel um, transform our minds. Help it move us towards compassion and mercy. God, help it change us. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so just to, just to catch you guys up, um, for those who haven't been here or following along with us, we've been studying the book of Matthew. Um, we started back in February, 
journeyed along through May, took a break for the summer, and now we're picking back up. So over the next several months, we'll be looking at Matthew 8 through 12. Just as a reminder, we need to see that Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing to the people of God who we read about in the Old Testament. And so this book is filled with a lot of cultural references that they would understand and that we as readers situated in our time and place have a little bit harder time understanding. But as we study and as we look, one of the things that we can see is that Matthew, the author of the book, is trying to continually emphasize what it looks like to be submitted to and shaped by King Jesus as our new king. So in case you've missed our series in Matthew, here's kind of an overview of Matthew 1 through 7. All right, chapter 1, Matthew looks at who is King Jesus. He's just come on the scene. Who is this guy? Chapter 2, where did he come from? What kind of heritage did he have? Chapter 3, it points to him as the long-awaited Savior, the Messiah that Israel had waited for for generations. And then chapter 4, we see Jesus' ministry actually begin. Then Matthew 5 through 7 is this long section referred to often as the Sermon on the Mount. It's the greatest sermon ever given by the greatest preacher who ever lived. And what Jesus is doing in that Sermon on the Mount in in chapter 5 through 7 is he's laying out a new ethic. He's telling you what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen in this new kingdom of God, submitted to and shaped by King Jesus. Then in Matthew 7, we have a transition that leads us to where we are now. We're going to see Jesus actually working and doing his ministry. Matthew 7, 28 through 29, it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, so after he gave the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. So what Matthew is now showing us as we turn into this new section is that Jesus has authority here on earth, that he truly is the king. And what we're going to see specifically this week and next week in in Matthew 8 is that Jesus has authority um, specifically over four things that we'll see. Diseases, his disciples, disasters, so we'll see Jesus calm the storm, and then lastly, demons. So today we'll we'll see, as we've seen in the text, that Jesus has authority over diseases. He has the power to heal. So the first account that we saw in Matthew 8, 1 through 4, is that Jesus heals the leper. Okay, it says in, in 8.1, large crowds followed Jesus as he came down the mountainside. Now, it's interesting. Many scholars point out that Matthew is actually very intentional in, lo- in, in telling us where Jesus is coming from. And he's doing this to, I guess, give an illusion, if you will, of Moses, right? So just as Moses went up on Mount Sinai, he received the Ten Commandments, and then came down the mountain, Jesus had just gone up, given a new law, if you will, the law of Christ, and is now descending, One scholar says this, he says, Jesus resembles Moses descending from Mount Sinai, revealing God's will and continuing God's work of liberation, of setting his people free. So Matthew, by doing this, he's continuing to allude to Jesus and his authority. No longer are the people to be submitted to Moses and his law, but rather to the Messiah, King Jesus. So he's coming down the mountain and a man with leprosy comes to him, right? And he kneels down. Now, if you've read the Bible at all, you know leprosy in Scripture is, is highly frowned upon, right? It's not something you wanted to have, if you will. Um, and leprosy in Scripture, it, it's a broader category than the way we define it right now. I think Hansen's disease is what many of us picture. Um, it, it, it's, it's much more broad than that, so we don't know exactly what this man had, but leprosy in this time was viewed as a spiritual contagion, actually. So it was more than just a physical disease. In Israel at this time, if you had leprosy, 
people viewed you as being cursed by God. So it wasn't people just trying to be mean or be jerks to you, okay? This was actually in the Levitical law. It says that those uh, with leprosy were actually to be declared ceremonially unclean. That's a mouthful. And were not allowed in the camp of, of God, okay? So they had to live outside of the city walls. And they were viewed as so repulsive, actually, that if you were to come in close to a leper, they actually had to yell at you, unclean, unclean, and essentially back away. It was seen as highly contagious, but it wasn't just physical contagion, right? It was spiritual as well. They were accursed by God. So this leper is actually violating a lot of laws and social norms, right, as he approaches Jesus. And we read in verse 2, he comes, he says, Lord, the man said... Lord, the man said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. So he's breaking a ton of rules. He's actually approaching a rabbi, coming in close physical contact with him, even though he's unclean. But he comes to Jesus in humility and recognition of his power. Do you see that? He bows down before Jesus in act of worship, and then he refers to him as Lord. And then he says, Jesus, you can heal me. This man knows that Jesus can heal him and make him clean, but really this man has a question of God's goodness, right? He says, I know you can, but will you? I know you're powerful enough, Jesus, but, but do you care enough? I know you have the authority over all diseases, but are you willing to get messy? I know you're a healer, but, but Jesus, would you heal somebody as repulsive as me? So this man, he has no doubts about Jesus' power. He's just not sure how compassionate, how good Jesus really is. How does Jesus respond? In verse 3, it says, Jesus reached out and touched him. He physically reached out and touched him. He said, I am willing. Be healed. And instantly, the leprosy disappeared. So Jesus shows just how good and compassionate and kind he is in granting this man's request. And really, like, we can't fault the guy. We can't look at him and be like, man, he just didn't have enough faith, right? This man was socially isolated, not just from his friends or his family, but even religious leaders. He had to live outside the city walls in contact with nobody except other lepers. So what reveals the depths of Jesus' compassion and goodness here is not just the physical healing, but that he actually reached out and touched the man. Jesus didn't, he, he, he didn't just ignore the social norms of the day, but he ignored the actual Levitical law that we see in the Old Testament. And the reality is he didn't have to do that. He did not have to touch the guy. We see later in the next miracle that he can heal with a word. But to model his compassion, he, he reaches down and he touches physically those who are deemed untouchable. So Jesus touching the leper before ta- actually talking to him, I think it says something to the church, right? Jesus didn't heal at a distance. He didn't just come with this proclamation of the word, but no relationality to it. As a church, we need to realize that the ministry of the word always needs to be accompanied by the ministry of deed. That if we actually want to see our neighborhoods changed and shaped for the gospel, by the ministry of the word, that we need to be willing to offer the ministry of our presence, right? Can't just hand out gospel tracts and, and leave people to figure it out, right? Jesus models a, a way that's different. He, he gives us an evangelistic method, if you will, that says, 
Yes, word is great, but you need to be there too. Your presence is powerful. Verse 4, it says, Then Jesus said to him, Don't tell anybody about this. What the heck, Jesus? Are you trying to go covert? He kind of is, right? He's not trying to be secretive in the sense that he's trying to hold back his, me- his message, okay? This isn't like um, the classic mal uh, or inappropriately quoted Francis of Assisi, right? Like, teach the gospel always when necessary, use words. He didn't actually say that, and this isn't like warrant for that, okay? Um, Jesus is not trying to tell you to like hide the gospel message, but rather... He's trying to not be this crazy miracle worker, right? In that day, if you were doing a bunch of miracles, people came and saw, right? He didn't want people to confuse his miracles with the message of the kingdom, right? The, the miracles that he was doing are pointing to something greater. They're not the end of the story. So he goes on, he says, instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. So again, going back to the Old Testament law, it required if you were cleansed of leprosy that you would then go to the temple, the place of worship, think maybe the church, you would have to go to this place, you would have to have the, um, the temple priest examine you and vouch for you. This guy's good. He doesn't have leprosy anymore. And then you would make an offering. So in one sense, Jesus is submitting to this law, He's abiding by this law in in Leviticus, but in another way, he's actually using the law to verify his authority. So if the temple priest declares this man clean, then he's declaring ultimately that Jesus has authority over disease. You guys see that? So Jesus is using the Levitical law um, to, to... show the veracity of his claims, to show that he actually has authority over disease. He's showing here in this radical miracle that this new, um, this new kingdom, it's no longer based on the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament. It's not determined by whether or not somebody has a specific disease or whether or not you're deemed as a quote-unquote insider, but it's solely based on a healing interaction with Jesus Christ. Now, before we move on too far, I want to show you guys visually what, what Jesus is doing. Okay, so um, we have a picture of the temple, okay? The crazy thing is, is Jesus is starting with the, I guess in a sense, furthest outside of the temple, okay? So if you look on here, you don't see anything. There's not a court of lepers, right? Okay, because they lived outside the city walls. They were so unclean, they could not even get into the city where God's presence was. Okay, as we move on though, where does Jesus go next? He goes to the court of the Gentiles, right? So the centurion, we'll see in a second, was a non-Jewish person. So this centurion did not have full access to that yellow place right there, to God's full presence. Then there was the court of women right there on the right. Okay, so even women in this day, they didn't have full access to God's presence. So what Jesus is doing is he is breaking down all these social and religious barriers. And he is saying, my kingdom is different than the way it's been. My presence is not restricted to people based on what they look like, based on their gender, based on whatever kind of crazy disease they may have. So he is breaking down barrier after barrier. So we move on in the story. Jesus heals the centurion's son, okay? Um, This guy was a Gentile. He was a non-Jew, And a centurion in this day, they would have been like the military backbone throughout the empire, okay? Maintaining discipline over soldiers, executing discipline. 
And they would have ruled over a hundred soldiers, which if you hear centurion, you can hear centurion there, right? They had a hundred soldiers under their rule. So this guy is a powerful leader in the Roman Empire. But with regards to his status with God's people, he's an outsider. He was an unclean Gentile. And further than that, he was actually an enemy of the people. He was a military power that had taken over their city and was ruling over them. But this doesn't stop Jesus from approaching this man or him approaching Jesus. The text says that he pleaded with Jesus. He says, Lord, my young servant, some translations read, or son, lies in bed paralyzed in terrible pain and in terrible pain. And Jesus says, I will come and heal him. So again, Jesus is is casting aside these social norms. He wasn't supposed to interact with this Gentile man who was outside of God's people. He was an ethnic outsider. And not only that, he was an enemy of the state. It's what makes verse 7 so surprising, is that a devout Jew, Jesus, he shouldn't have gone to this man's home, but he offers to, to heal his son. But just as soon as Jesus offers to come heal the man's son, the centurion, he, he realizes how unworthy he is to have this man in his home. What does he say in verse 8? He says, the officer said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. And this is a remarkable statement about the soldier's faith in Jesus' power. Because up to this point, he has no reason, he's ne- he hasn't seen firsthand that Jesus can heal from a distance. But somehow he, he, he knows, even though he doesn't have this Old Testament understanding of who God was, he knows. And he knows this because he understood delegated authority, right? Jesus was under God's authority. He was vested with God's authority. And this man knew that when Jesus spoke, God spoke. When Jesus acted, God acted. His authority was God's authority. And his word was effective because it was God's word. In verse 10, Jesus says, when he heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. In all of God's people, I haven't seen faith like this. This man's an outsider, yet he has more faith than the insiders. Do you see how crazy this is? Jesus, he's turning over these social norms. This person who is outside the family of God Jesus hasn't seen greater faith in him. His faith is so surprising because he didn't, he didn't quote-unquote grow up in the church, right? He wasn't going to Sunday school. He wasn't doing Bible drills, right? But he had more faith than the church folks. The crowds, they have to be shocked by this, right? But Jesus isn't done yet, okay? He's about to really flip their world over. Their entire understanding of God's kingdom, who's in and who's out, is about to get turned over. Here's what he says in verse 11. I tell you this, that many Gentiles, many of the outsiders, the ethnic outsiders, will come from all over the world, from east and west, and they will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers of the faith, at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, the the religious folks, the church folks, those For whom the kingdom was prepared will be thrown into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus, he's been alluding to this reality that the kingdom is no longer going to be based on ethnic lines. He's been alluding to that all through Matthew so far. But this is the first time that he's actually putting it on display. 
He just said that this Gentile man who is an ethnic outsider actually has greater faith than anyone who's a so-called insider. Not only that, but he's saying that these outsiders are actually now the ones who are going to be a part of the kingdom. And those who are insiders will be thrown out. They will be cast out into outer darkness. So if you're, if you're listening to Jesus, like, this is a lot to take in. Not only are the people that we have looked down on for so long and deemed too far from God's presence, too far from God's care, now they're be, being granted into the kingdom. But on top of that, those that we thought were the insiders, the good old religious folks, they're actually not in anymore. And this is challenging to us, right? There's, there's something within each one of us that, that tends to, to edit folks out of God's story. Isn't there? I think it, it causes us to ask, like, who, who am I trying to edit out of God's story? Who's too far gone, in my mind, for God? Who's too unclean? Who's too dirty? So who have you edited out of God's story? Is this somebody that looks different than you? Somebody from a different country? Is it somebody that might be here um, who shouldn't be? Is it based on political affiliations, right? Like everyone who votes Democrat, they're out. Or on the flip side, everyone who votes Republican, they're out. What about like the junkies and drug addicts that we see walking up and down in the streets of our neighborhood? Are they too far gone for God? Have you, have you just cast them aside, edited them out? God's kingdom, it doesn't abide by our social boundaries that we erect. It's what we read about in Ephesians, right? It says, Jesus broke down the dividing walls. Yet we have a tendency to continue to put up these dividing walls, even if artificially. God, he, Jesus came to destroy those dividing walls. And in, the, in God's kingdom, they, they don't exist anymore. Verse 13, it says, Then Jesus said to the Roman officer, Go back home. Because you believed, it has happened. And the young servant was healed that same hour. Such a powerful picture of, of Jesus' authority, right? That even with a word, he heals. But he's not done healing, right? He's, he's not done breaking down social barriers, and then in uh, verse 14 through 17, we see that he heals Peter's, mother, P- Peter's mother-in-law, one of his disciples. So Peter's mother-in-law was sick. She had a high fever. And like the two before, she's part of a marginalized group. Okay? It's not mothers-in-law. It's, it's women, right? It's women. Um, she was considered like a half-caste citizen, if you will, right? In this patriarchal society that they had, as, I, as we saw earlier in the temple drawing, women couldn't get as close to God. Like, what the heck's that about? I think we need to see, even then, that there was a tendency for us, or for those people, and and still us today, to marginalize folks, to look over them, to look past them. I think we've seen even in our, our history, in the U.S. Constitution, right, there was um, this three-fifths compromise. Y'all remember that from history class? 
right, to essentially garner up proper representation. Slaves were counted as three-fifths of a person. So they were people, but they weren't full people. And this is how women were viewed in that day as well, right? One, one sermon I listened to, I'm not going to go this far, but the guy said that women were basically like furniture. They were just in the room, and they didn't get acknowledged, So again, Jesus, he is going to those who are deemed to be outsiders, who don't have full access to God's presence, and he, he is healing those people first. And this is a kingdom principle that we see, right? The first shall be last, the last shall be first. He's saying those who are inside are actually going to be outside, those who are outsiders are actually going to become insiders. And even though Peter's, ma, Peter's mother-in-law, she didn't ask to be healed. Jesus is so moved in compassion that he does so anyways. Verse 15, again, with the healing touch, it says, when Jesus touched her hand, the fever left her. Then she got up and prepared a meal for him. So word of Jesus' healings, right, they began to spread. Even though you tell people, don't, don't say anything, right? They say something anyways. You can't keep a secret, right? So, when somebody's doing miracle working, everyone finds out. So they bring all those who are demon-possessed, it says, or sick. And Jesus continued to show his authority by casting out the evil spirits with a simple command and healing all the sick. And Matthew, who, remember, he's writing to a Jewish audience. He shows how this, these healings, they fulfill um, what the great prophet Isaiah says. This is what Matthew says in Matthew eight seventeen. This fulfilled the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, who said he took our sickness and removed our diseases. So Matthew's saying to his readers, you've waited for so long for this suffering servant to come, this man that's spoken of in Isaiah, and here he is. With all power, with all authority from God, this is the one you've been waiting for. He's fulfilling what the prophet Isaiah told you years ago. Matthew's showing that Jesus has all the authority of God. He has the authority over diseases, and he is the long-awaited king, the one that they've been longing for. So as we look at, as, as, uh, at Jesus' authority over disease in these healing accounts, we always have to ask the question, well, so what does this mean for me right now? We're not just going for information. We're not just going for head knowledge, right? We long for transformation. So what is God's word teaching us today? I think the best way to look at it is to ask two questions. The first is, do you believe Jesus can heal you? Do you believe Jesus can heal you? It's a question of Jesus' power. This is a question of Jesus' power. Now, I'm guessing already, right, when I lodge that question, there's probably two things that have happened. Okay, first, you've probably already, you're thinking of this in a spiritual sense. That's naturally how we're inclined. And that's right and good, right? Jesus does heal us spiritually, but we typically don't think of Jesus still having power today to physically heal us. The reality is that for most of us, we've actually just relegated Jesus' power up into the heavens. Right? He only deals with my spiritual issues, but not my physical things anymore. But if Jesus' power, it's only relegated to spiritual healing, do you see how that actually reduces his power? If he can only deal with spiritual stuff, well... What do I do when I am diagnosed with a tumor? Who's, who's taking care of that? What God do I turn to when my kidneys are failing? 
or even more on a smaller scale when I simply have a fever. Now, on a first read, okay, many of us, because, again, of our view set, our, our mindset of, of Jesus only dealing with spiritual matters, we read Matthew 8, 17, and he's quoting Isaiah 53, 4, but we miss what he's actually doing here, okay? So Isaiah 53, 4, here's what it says. Yet it was our weakness he carried, it was our sorrows that weighed him down, and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. Now, I can pretty confidently say that many of us, when we read that, we only see the spiritual sense, okay? And again, that's totally right, okay? Here's what Peter says. Here's how he interprets it, the one whose mother-in-law was just healed. We read this earlier in the liturgy. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So Peter reads this, and it's a fulfillment of Jesus' spiritual work. Now look at what Matthew does in Matthew 8, 17. Don't miss this, okay? It says, this fulfilled the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah who said, he took our sicknesses, nothing to do with spirituality there, and removed our diseases. Again, nothing to do with spirituality there. I love this. Matthew is translating this Old Testament text, and he is saying, Jesus' authority is noticed in his ability to physically heal you. His power is not just limited to spiritual issues as so many of us, uh, we struggle with, right? We denigrate Jesus' power when we only see it as an ability to to take care of our spiritual needs. But Jesus has the ability to heal every single aspect of our being, physically, emotionally, socially. It's not just spiritual matters that he is over and has authority over. But hey, maybe you already know that. If you do, you can skip that section, move on, Now you're thinking, like, I know Jesus heals me. I pray to God all the time when people have physical ailments. That's awesome. But I would press on you a little bit and ask, is this, is it really just kind of like, again, something you intellectually assent to, or is that something you really believe? One of the very interesting things um, that oftentimes we, we just don't know what to do with is that throughout the Gospels, Jesus associates people's faith with their healing happening, okay? Now, I know all of you have already tensed up, or a lot of you have, okay? I'm not going health and wealth gospel on you, okay? But read your Bibles and see how often Jesus says that somebody is healed because of that person's faith. We see it right here in the story of the centurion. Now, it's important before we go on too far, right, uh, we struggle sometimes to understand what faith is, right? Like, well, I, I am a man of faith, or, you know, like, I, there are many faith traditions, right? We use it in so many different ways. Here's what one scholar says. I think it's really helpful. It says, faith is not intellectual assent to confession or ideals. So he's like, it's not just about agreeing with facts, but a way of life centered on trust in God's power to bring a new reality, God's reign into being. So it's a way of life centered on trust in God's power to bring about a new reality, a new kingdom. So to put it even more simply, I would say that faith is is a life built on trusting that God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he's going to do. To put it even more simply, faith is trust. Now, when I was in college, uh, I worked at a ropes course on campus, okay? Got some pictures of, of me with my freshman 15, 
There we go. The locks are flowing. Probably bring those back someday. Uh, so a ropes course is a place that requires faith, right? Some of you are like, yes and amen. I, I need to trust God's not going to kill me there. But I, I'm, I'm talking here more in a sense of we have to have faith and trust in this equipment, right? You got to trust in the harnesses, the carabiners, the ropes. Now, at the ropes course, go to the next slide. So there was this climbing wall. Now, the best and most effective way to get off the climbing wall was to take the zip line down. Okay? Oh, yeah. You're like 35 feet in the air. Go to the next one. And then you just, you know, shoot down the tunnel of trees, right? Your typical zip line there. Now, without fail, okay, so people would get to that ledge, right? And I'm holding onto their harness up at the top on the back, okay? So they sit down. And then you have to lean forward so you don't bonk your head on the way out, okay? Now, typically what people would do when they get to this position is I would say, all right, you ready? They'll start leaning forward and then like jerk back like this, okay? And I can't just shove them off, right? Now, what, what is happening right there? No matter how many times I tell them, hey, I triple checked your carabiners, your harness is good, the rope will hold like one ton, right? It's not going to just break in midair. There's a place for all of us that we have to move simply behind the facts that we know and we have to move to actual lived experience. You hear that? Faith is more than just this intellectual knowledge that you have. Faith is a lived experience. It's trusting that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. When we think about faith and God's power to heal, the same is true for us. Okay, it doesn't matter if we intellectually agree with the story. We're like, yeah, I know Jesus can heal me. It doesn't matter if you know in your mind that he can do that when you're given an opportunity to trust in that if you don't respond in faith, in a lived-out experience. So the call for us here today is to look at these healing stories, not just having facts in our brains that we know that Jesus can heal, but to really believe that he has the ability to bring physical healing into our lives even now. Now again, there's no guarantee that Jesus will heal you, right? Paul tells us that he had a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what that means exactly. But Paul had something going on, and Jesus didn't heal him. It's not a one-to-one correlation. But if we believe that Jesus actually can heal us. We need to live in faith that he will, and he has the power to do that. So do you believe Jesus can heal you? And secondly, I think this question calls us to ask, do you believe Jesus wants to heal you? Do you believe Jesus wants to heal you? This is a question of God's goodness, of Jesus' goodness. There's this well-known scene in in C.S. Lewis' book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Okay, two of the children Susan and Lucy, they asked Mr. and Mrs. Beaver to tell them about Aslan, the lion, who in the story is this Christ-like figure. So they started to ask if Aslan is a man, and here's what Mr. Beaver replies. says, Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees locking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. 
Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So you see the girls here, they, they know lions. They know that lions are mighty creatures. So the question for them is whether or not Aslan, this person they're going to interact with, is safe. This ultimately boils down to a question of whether or not I can be in Aslan's presence or will it go poorly for me if I am? Can he actually control his power or am I in danger? This scene is so similar to the account of the leper's healing, right? The leper, he recognizes Jesus' power, his ability to heal him. He knows that Jesus can heal him, but for him, the question is one of goodness. Would Jesus be compassionate on this helpless, on this man's helpless state? Or would he be just like every other rabbi before, just keep walking on by? You see, the leper, he'd been told his entire life that he was not good enough, that he was unclean. We, we all know how powerful words are, right? Someone tells you you're not good enough for your whole life. You start to believe that. He thinks he's too far gone. He's too dirty. He's too repulsive to even look at, much less touch. So why, why would this Jesus guy be any different? Well, for Jesus, nobody is too far gone. Nobody is too sick. Nobody is too ceremonially unclean, too repulsive, too ugly, too abused. Nobody is too far out of the reach of our gentle and compassionate Savior. Now, I know none of you here, you're, you're not worried about physical uncleanliness, that you feel, feel Jesus would pass over you. But I think there's probably many of you in this room who feel spiritually unclean. You might feel like a, a spiritual leper. You have serious doubts about whether or not Jesus wants to heal you, about whether he, he just wants to engage with you at all. But just like the leper, your uncleanness is not greater than Jesus' cleanliness. If Jesus were to reach out to you, you're not so dirty that you would make him unclean. You wouldn't infect him with your quote-unquote spiritual contagion, right? But many of us, we're, we're so worried that we, we, we might as well stay at a distance, right? God's not worried about your dirtiness, okay? Your sin cannot overpower him. And that's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, right? Sin can't overpower Jesus because he already took care of it. He says, thank God he gives us victory over sin and death, through our Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what it is that you think you're in, you're not too dirty, you're not too unclean, you're not too far gone. Doesn't matter if you're, um, gosh, addicted to opioids or watching pornography every night or stealing at work, you are not too unclean for Jesus. You're not beyond redemption, you're not beyond hope. Jesus not only can heal you, hear me, he wants to heal you. He is good. He is compassionate. Don't, don't you see, like, your leprous, quote-unquote, skin is not too gross for Jesus to touch, to reach out and to heal. Jesus 
is not just powerful, but he is good. And as we just read in, in 1 Peter 2, even though Matthew quotes this, this Isaiah passage in a physical sense, 1 Peter quotes it in a spiritual sense, right? Jesus did heal us spiritually. It says, He himself bore our sins and his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Author Brennan Manning, he's got this great quote. He says, God loves you just as you are and not as you should be because you will never be as you should be. You see, the reality is you are never going to be able to clean yourself up enough. In the presence of a holy God, you're always going to appear dirty. We don't, as, as, as people of God, we don't behave to belong you can't work harder to get closer to God. Christ cleans you up by becoming dirty for you. And it's from his work of making you clean that you can actually now live. He tells us this in John 15, 3. He says, you are already clean because the word I have spoken to you. Praise God. Brothers and sisters, I want to plead with you, believe that Jesus can heal you and know that he wants to heal you in every dimension of your life. Not just spiritually, he's not just worried about only your spiritual stuff, right? Physically, emotionally, socially. The question for us to ask is, do, do we trust that he is powerful and do we trust that he is good? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I, I urge you to consider this good news. The reality is that you're, you're never just going to get right with God by, by working harder, by trying to clean yourself up. As I said earlier, you, you can't simply behave to belong. You've got to be made right through the work of Christ, and that alone. He invites you. He reaches out to you, just as you reach out to the leper or to Peter's mother-in-law. He reaches out to heal you to cleanse you, to restore you, to actually invite you into community. He invites you into something bigger and better than this world will ever offer. And every week when we gather, we rehearse these realities. We practice a meal called communion every week to remind us not only that Jesus can heal us, but that he wants to heal us. We know this because he came down, he stepped into our mess, he became a man, he took on flesh, and he died on a cross to heal us. As First Peter said, it's by his wounds that we are healed. We're reminded of that every week when we take this meal called communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. In the same way, took the cup, the new covenant. He said, this is the covenant, the, the new covenant cup is sealed by the shedding of my blood. He said, as, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this, this juice, you're pronouncing Christ's death until he returns. Here at Sojourn, our tradition is to um, take off a piece of bread and to dip it into the juice. There will be stations up here at the front. Um, there will be instructions behind me uh, to show you where you need to go. There will be gluten-free elements to my left and your right. And if you're unable to physically come forward, 
Um, we'll bring the elements to you. Just be sure to, to make it known that you want us to bring the elements to you. And lastly, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, uh, we ask that you not partake in this meal, not because we're trying to exclude you. We're not trying to make you, quote-unquote, outsiders. But Jesus says that this meal is for those who are insiders in the kingdom, that those who have interacted and become Christ followers, that they have um, interacted with Jesus in a healing way. Um, so we just ask that you um, not partake in the meal this week. Um, but if you have questions about what it means to become a Christian, we would love to talk with you and tell you what it looks like to be a part of God's kingdom. In a second, I'm going to pray for us. Our servants will come forward. You can prepare your hearts to take this meal, and then as you're ready, you can come forward and take communion. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you took on flesh, that you became man, that you dwelt among us sinful people, all so that you could redeem us, and that you could invite us into this new kingdom. We thank you, Jesus, that you have um, not only all power and all authority, but you're also perfectly good. We know that you can heal us and that you want to. God, as we prepare to take communion this morning, I ask that we would repent where we've gone astray, that we would remember the gospel message that you have made us clean. We thank you, Jesus, that you bore our sins, that by your wounds we were healed. Pray all this in his name. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.